4: welcome 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 back to the bob left podcast my guest today is the one and only daryl hall daryl you've been out this summer with todd rungren on the road how did that come together well i uh,
5: you know i have a, a, a what i call a body of work album uh, that i put out in when February March I forget and uh, and and I wanted to tour behind it and play songs that uh, uh, that are uh, you know uh, that are my solo part of my solo work and um, uh, and and I wanted somebody to sort of make the Daryl's house the life of Daryl's house experience uh, come to the stage and my first thought was my old friend Todd Rundgren and, and because it really is a perfect combination. Um, you know, his, his musical history and mine are, are sort of very unique and very unique and similar. And, and, uh, it, it's a great, it, it wound up being a really great show. Uh, he uses my band and then we do stuff together and stuff separately. And it's all really, it's all really working out
4: very well. Now you're both from the Philly area in the late sixties. Uh, Todd was from upper Derby. He had the band Naz. Were you aware of all that? Did you like that? Did you know Todd back then? I
5: didn't know Todd back in the in the late sixties. He he worked. Uh, he was doing that stuff, right? He was in the Nas of Woody's Truck Stop and all those bands, which I was aware of. But I was I was definitely well ensconced in the world of, uh, of Philly Soul, you know, with Gamble and Huff and Tommy Bell and people like that, and and uh, uh, and and all the all the radio stations that were involved in that uh, in that. Uh, genre, and so we didn't really know each other, and we met in—we uh, really met in New York in the early '70s, uh, uh, appropriately at a at a, at a, a movie, uh, showing a showing of Fantasia. <laughs>
4: <laughs> <laughs> and how did Todd end up uh, uh, doing the producing the third & Oates album, Warren Babies?
5: Well, it started with that, you know. Uh, I I thought. I had just moved to New York, and I i was experiencing New York. You know, I was really full of beans. It was like Philadelphia was one experience. I had left that, and I said, I, I want to do something completely different and really open my mind up and, and open my mind to the sound of New York. When I say the sound, you know, the, the actual street sounds of New York. And I wanted to, uh, to make a, a record and write songs that reflected that. And I was aware of Todd's... He had just started working with Utopia, uh, and uh, I was—I re- I went to see him uh, a bunch of times, really, and was so impressed with what he was doing. And also, that was when he was in his his role. He was—he 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 was producing everybody from Alice Cooper to the New York Dolls to God knows who, you know, a million people. And uh, I said, okay, well, why don't we, this this on paper sounds good, you know, an, an ex Philadelphia uh, moved to New York. Obviously he's a good to understand you know creative person, and uh, let's try and see what happens and what War baby's album is the result of what happened uh, You know maybe. Well,
4: that was your third album on Atlantic and it was not commercially successful. Now, you know most people when things are not happening, they sort of break apart from those people. How did you maintain a relationship with Todd? Uh,
5: I have always respected Todd. And, and it would, just because it wasn't a commercially access, uh, accessible or a commercially accepted album, uh, that, that really wasn't what my agenda was about with that album. Um, I was naive enough and, and uh, idealistic enough to just say, "Okay, let's move on." I, I did that. That was a, that was an interesting experience, and let's, let me use that and, and uh, incorporate that into whatever the future is. And I never really lost track of Todd over the years, and and. Uh, and so we, we've sort of maintained this kind of loose relationship for all those years.
4: Now, ultimately, you and your partner produced the Hall & Oates albums together, Daryl Hall and John Oates. Uh, what did you learn from working with Todd? Uh, I learned what not to do.
5: <laughs> <laughs> so what shouldn't you do? Try, try and be accessible. <laughs> don't, don't be inaccessible for its own sake uh I, I that that is a lesson i learned uh todd's a stubborn a stubborn guy and he he has a, 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 a an aversion to uh uh to to being uh easily accepted and i used to have arguments with him about it. i said todd you know this song this could work out really well a lot of people would like it and he did everything he could to like fuck with that idea you know uh it's just it's his personality and he's in, in his mellowness and age now he he has accepted the idea that you could be accessible which is even a better reason for us to be working together on stage
4: okay do you think if someone else had produced war babies or you'd done it yourself it would have been more commercially viable
5: it would have been more commercially viable but it would have been the same album I maybe mean, i don't even know if it would have been the same songs uh it was it, i I tend to write for projects and uh that was written with the idea that I was gonna work with Todd in New York in a New York environment. And and uh I, I, I may have written a completely different set of songs on my own or with somebody else or whatever, you know.
4: Tell me about writing for projects. What do you mean there?
5: Well, I I don't write I mean I do write randomly, but I
4: tend to not
5: not focus my writing until I know that I'm going to either work with somebody or there's some project that's coming up um, and, and then I write with that in mind it sort of like energizes me and I start writing like crazy and you know coming up with ideas and do this all of a piece and uh, that that tends to come out I, I, I like to keep a momentum going I, I, I recently I've uh, uh, deviated from that. And I didn't like that because I was doing a lot of false starts because i was so busy with other things and I would get all excited about something and do it. And then it would sort of like sit on the shelf. And, uh, I don't like doing that. I like working for the project, putting out the project, it, it, keeping the enthusiasm going for the project and, uh, taking it to, to its completion.
4: So what would be the time window prior to going into the studio? We call an album, a project. When would you get excited and then start to compose?
5: When I knew I was going to start doing it, you know, when it when it, when it started getting scheduled and I knew who I was going to work with, uh, and, and even in the early stages of the recordings, I would uh, my my mind would be on fire, you know, and that's and I write things right, you know, very spontaneously and and quickly. Uh, uh, that's usually the way it has worked.
4: Okay, and you say you change the content depending on who you're working with? Yeah, to
5: some degree, uh, I I change the the mood. I might change. I won't change the emotional uh, uh, source of of the song. That that comes from me and my experiences. But the, as far as production goes, and even my the the, the melodies I choose or the chords I choose, uh, it it really has to do a lot with with uh, with 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 the moment with, with what what I'm trying to um, uh, with the people that I'm working with really yeah
4: okay let's go back to the beginning you grew up in the Philly area in town and the suburbs where I grew up in Pottstown
5: which is in Chester County and it was uh, it was an industrial town with farms all around it and I sort of had my feet on both sides uh, I uh, I lived in uh, amidst farmland. Uh, a bicycle ride away from, uh, the, the deepest, uh, uh neighborhoods that you want to deal with. And, uh, so I, I've always been a sort of a rural urban person, you know, foot in both sides.
4: And what did your parents do for a living?
5: My mother wore, it was a singer and, and she was in a band and she worked also at a radio station, the Pottstown radio station. And, uh, And my father uh, ran a a, a pattern making department because Pottstown was at that time was a very industrial town.
4: And how many kids in the family?
5: I have a sister. That's it. Five years younger than me.
4: And what's your relationship with her?
5: Extremely close. Anything you see visually, uh, ever is, is uh, my collaboration with her. You know, she's a graphic, a graphic designer, artist, uh, many, many things, and uh, she she sort of controls my visual world.
4: Okay. For, I'm a little younger than you, and I remember listening to the early 60s radio knowing some of those tracks, listening to sports, and then the Beatles hit, and it really took off. What was your experience listening to radio and getting in, into music?
5: Well, in Philadelphia, it, it's a really... Unique environment, or it was a really unique environment, continues to be really to some degree. Uh, and in the when I was a teenager, pop radio was not popular uh, in in Philadelphia. People uh, the the hipwazi anyway, it wasn't popular with those people. And and if you were cool, you listened to you either listened to soul music, which was everywhere, and that was that was baby food, or even the precursor of that, which was, was street corner music, which was uh, acapella music and doo-wop and early, early vocal rock and roll. Uh, and there was a a guy named Jerry Blavitt, who was a very, very influential person to people who cared about music. And I was just a total devotee of that. And I was, I was sort of a street corner singer and, and, uh, um, and, and that was my beginnings doing that and then that, that's closely aligned with the whole soul thing you know I mean vocal groups uh, whether they be the Temptations or, or, or the Dandeliers you know it's 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 just a progression of the, the same kind of music but we rejected I mean the Beatles were not even thought about in Philadelphia until later later period let's say around revolver Sergeant Pepper people started saying oh the Beatles have something interesting to offer Philadelphians. Before that, they just looked at them like a bar band.
4: Okay, you say you were a street corner singer. You're living in a rural area. What did that literally look like being a street corner singer?
5: Well, I, 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 My parents lived in a rural area, but my all her all their friends lived in black neighborhood in Philadelphia. I mean, sorry, in Pottstown. So I would, I, I, I sort of lived. I, sometimes I would sleep at home but I would, I, especially in the summertime I would just be over there on on, on Walnut Street in, in Pottstown and uh, and it was it was it was music on the streets that's the best way I could put it it was a, it was an integrated neighborhood and uh, and it was the kind of music I liked everything from gospel music to church music from the corner churches to uh, uh, to uh, p- people playing record players in their houses. On the front porches and stuff like that
4: okay you come from a soul influence what about doo-wop or dion and the belmonts were those part of your uh, consciousness was that something different
5: well d dion and belmonts were way too pop i mean th- that that's uh, uh that kind of thing yes a uh, doo-wop music vocal group man you know people just stand around that kind
4: of stuff okay So you're growing up. What kind of kid are you? Good student, bad student? Have a lot of friends? Out, you know, an outsider.
5: I was an outsider. Uh, I was a a restless, a restless person. Uh, I was a, you know, I'm a. I I know you know this, Bob. I'm an avid reader. I'm a bookworm, and a historian, and all that kind of thing. That put me at odds as a child. You know, Uh, I, I was a good student uh yeah very good student until i uh, until I got to be a teenager and then I became a very restless and indifferent student and uh I was more interested in uh hanging out than I was uh doing my homework
4: so at what point did you learn to play musical instrument?
5: I started playing piano at five and uh and i played i took you know formal piano lessons until I was about twelve or thirteen. And uh, then my mother, for some bizarre reason, decided that she wanted me to play the trombone. And I, and I picked up the trombone, and I pretty much hated the trombone. You know, I mean, what a cornball instrument. But uh, I wanted to play the saxophone, but she said something about, your mouth shape isn't right for that. <laughs> you know, why didn't I get a saxophone? I don't know. But uh, uh, so I, I stopped the piano lessons and then started playing on my own and writing songs. And and becoming, uh, you know, learning, sort of uh, playing self-taught, you know, self-teaching. And uh, then when I I was, uh, I went to Temple University uh, Music School, so then I resumed my uh, more formal piano studies, and I was actually a piano opera major, and uh, went there for five years.
4: And, but you didn't graduate, right?
5: I quit a, a few weeks before graduation.
4: What was the reason there?
5: I had a choice between having to complete this rigorous uh, student teaching program or play in a bar band, and I, I was in a. I thought it was a good bar band, and and uh, my supervisor says you can't do both. You have to choose your life. Either you're going to do this music education thing, or you, or you're going to be a rock and roll singer. And I said, okay, you just made my mind up. I <laughs> mean, goodbye, <clears throat> bye.
4: now frequently when someone has as much success as you do their old college reaches out and gives them an honorary degree or something has temple reached out yeah
5: i i i I didn't i didn't bother with it (laughs) i've been i've been uh, offered honorary honorary degrees by berkeley and temple and i i just uh, i'm not
4: interested i don't care okay so when you're going to temple you're then living in philly
5: oh yeah I moved to Philadelphia when I was uh, 17 and immediately jumped into the the heart of the whole thing. And, uh, that was the, that was the great thing about being going to Temple university where in North Philadelphia, five blocks from the uptown theater. And, uh, and, you know, and in the middle of the, one of the deepest, uh, black neighborhoods in the city. And, uh, I lived and inhabited that area for five years and and beyond that, of course, uh, and uh, that that really kind of sort of uh, formed me. You know, I was, I was. I already mentioned what I was into in Pottstown, but then when I got to Philly, it really just kind of locked in. And I immediately met, uh, with, within a few months, I met uh, Gamble and Huff and, and Tommy Bell and people like that, and uh, so it all it all started formalizing and and you know coalescing
4: okay so when you went to temple on this music program what did you think do you think well you know i got to do something now or i want to do something you know more classical or i want to mark time before i become a rock and roll or soul star what was in your mind well no I, i i i was
5: learning things in school i learned how to be an arranger and and uh you know I did a lot of solfeggio, and, and you know, I, I, I honed honed my craft uh, formally. But at the same time, I was singing on the corner, and I was hanging out and making records with the Temptones, and and, uh, and, and 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 hanging out with Tommy Bell and people like that. So it was that to me, that was my real education was was was, was uh, being introduced and and working uh, with the with with the early Philadelphia sound.
4: Well, how did you meet Tom Bell and Gamble and Huff?
5: I. Had a band. We formed a temple called the Temp Towns. It was a vocal group, and uh, we they used to have just like the Apollo in New York. They used to have talent shows on I believe it was Wednesday nights, and uh, we uh, did did a talent show at the at the Uptown Theater, and uh, we won the talent show, and the, the prize was you got to make a record with uh, Kenny and Leon. Wow, and and uh, so. They had this, you know, small label Arctic Records. We went into this four-track studio, Virtue Sound Studios, and uh, uh, Frankie Virtue's studio, uh, and uh, uh, and and we made uh, we we made a record. And uh, this guy Jimmy Bishop, who was a DJ and one of the, the top DJs in in Phila- in, uh, in W.D.A.S. in Philadelphia. Uh, picked us up and, and uh, started sort of semi-managing us and uh, and you know we had a chart record in, in WDAS charts R&B charts and uh, through that I can't remember how I met Tommy I actually can't remember but uh, I immediately got along with him and I used to go and hang out at, he used to have an office at Cabello Parkway this was before Philadelphia International and uh And and I used to go and sit there and listen to him play the piano and come up with ideas. And uh, so I certainly learned a lot from Tommy Bell. What year are we in? Uh, 67, 68. Okay.
4: The fact that you were white, did they see color? Were you the only white guy? Was it accepted? Was it integrated?
5: In those days, that was it, it, it was it was integrated. It, it, I never I never once had a problem with any of that stuff back in the day, I,
4: and I, I never have since then. So you have a dream, you have a record, it's on the chart. What did that feel like? I mean, it's played on the radio.
5: It was wild. I remember I was walking on on Broad Street. Uh, And these kids, they're really cool kids, like, you know, cool Italian kids. They look like they could have been on American Bandstand or something. And and they're walking down the street, and they're singing, Girl, I love you. And they're all, like, harmonizing. And I ran up to them, and I said, Hey, man, that's my song. That's my song. (laughs) And they went, Oh, yeah, yeah. Get the fuck out of here. You know?
0: (laughs) Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury
3: Put the spring back into your step and into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save 40% site-wide. Get 40% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply.
2: You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu.
4: So you have that one success, then what about a follow-up?
5: Oh, I don't know. I wasn't thinking about follow-ups. My brain wasn't. It's never been there, Bob. You know, I, I'm not a commercially oriented person. And the irony is that I've had such success commercially, but I don't really fucking care about that stuff. I don't write for, for those kind of, with, with that in mind. Uh, I, uh, I, 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 I we made another record, you know, and, and it, it it was called Say These Words of Love. Ah, it didn't do anything. And then I moved on and the temp broke up. And then uh, I, like I said, I moved on.
4: Okay, when you moved on, you know, you had these singing groups. At what point did you form a band that it was more, you know, rock and soul?
5: I never really, uh, well, I was in a, a bar band for a while. That was what I quit the uh, temple for. And it was called Pal and the Prophets. And they were, that was the closest thing to a bar band I was ever in. And uh, I don't know, I didn't really get along with Pal that well. He's a, he's a good guy, but, I, you know, we, we bumped heads. So I, that didn't last too long. And uh, then I started just sort of kicking around and, and and using my connections. I started hanging out with a uh, 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 with in Sigma Sound and doing backup work, doing the odd keyboard playing and things like that, odds and ends. And uh, and, and sort of hooked up with this guy named John Madera, who was his uh, one of his claim to fame was he wrote at the Hop, okay. Uh, you know, and uh, he wrote "You Don't Own Me" with Leslie Gore and "One Two 3 with Lenny. Patty. Oh, I love that. He, you know, yeah. I mean, that's that's John Madera. You know, he wrote those songs, and he had a production, uh, a production and publishing company, and I sort of attached myself to that. And he gave me a little money occasionally, and I'd play. You know, I'd do sessions for like thirty bucks and stuff like that. And and well, I lived in a place that only cost eighty five dollars a month, so it was it wasn't that hard to live. And uh, uh, and then I, uh, 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 yeah, the end of all that is when I met John and we decided to uh, play some songs together acoustically and, uh, and we started playing in coffee houses and places like that. And that's when that started. Okay.
4: When you met John and you formed a band and playing acoustically, was that because it was the moment, the late 60s, what was going on? Because that seems to be a little bit of a change from your soul background.
5: It was a change. I think that uh, meeting John, I, I was. The reason that I got together with him is because he was involved in a scene that I didn't know anything about. I, I knew nothing about bluegrass music or folk music or any of that kind of stuff it just didn't it wasn't you know it was invisible to me and uh i was sort of fascinated by it because i was still a student you know and and i was trying to expand my mind and i was learning trying to learn about things that i didn't know about and i I did gravitate to bluegrass music because it's 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 own kind of soul i mean bluegrass is very soulful music and uh then we started I started listening to that, and he started turning me on to all that stuff, and that was really how we formulated our early relationship musically was my natural what I do you know my it's my background, my soul thing and and his what i what they call these days americana you know uh and and mixing those two things together
4: okay, you're doing this it's just one of the many things you're doing or you're saying, wait a second, this is my road to success.
5: Well, at that point we were sort of doing both. I was still with Gamble and Huff doing stuff, but one day, I, I mean, I can remember this. I, I had made a decision and, and Kenny, he, he came to me, he, he came to me and he said, do you want, do you want to work with Philadelphia international? You want to be a songwriter? You want to be an artist? And, I I I said no. I said I think I want to move to New York with Oats and we're going to we're going to we're going to take what we do and go out of Philadelphia. I just I wanted to expand outside of Philadelphia. I don't know why, but I did. And uh so that was a decision made and we moved to New York and then all that other shit started.
4: Okay, did you let me stay when you're in Philadelphia? What is your rep? Is you are you known as that guy who's got that voice? Or you just one of the people, you know? How were you perceived?
5: Uh, yeah, I was perceived that way. That, that guy, that guy that sings that way. Uh, uh I, I I I was you know it was a relatively small environment and, and uh, community,
4: and uh, uh, yeah, I got it. I had a, I had a reputation for doing what I do. Now, for those on the inside, they know that. Success is not accidental, and usually it's a matter of relationships. Working the relationships. Anybody who's working in bands who's not successful. Knows that. So, are you relatively a hustler or connector? To what degree was John like that? What was going on?
5: I am a person who takes advantage of opportunities whenever I can find them, and if they if if I feel like they they make sense to me. I am certainly more that way than Oates was.
4: Okay. So you moved to New York, no manager, no band. Where do you live? What's the first step?
5: Well, I did sort of have a manager. Okay. So we'll go back to that. I, 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 I did not get along with John Madera. Ultimately we parted company. Not so well. And he, but the one thing that he did for me is he had a a, a, a temporary he used to lease his publishing out and he, at the time he had leased his publish, publishing out to Chapel Music up in New York and I went up there and with him to go to the office one time, I don't know why and uh, met this kid uh, named Tommy Matola, and uh, he was t- 21 years old, and uh, he had an office the size of a telephone booth. And uh, I don't, I'm not even sure if that was his office. But uh, anyway, he uh, he said, hey, what's going on? You know, And, and we, we became sort of started talking, became friends, and he heard what I did. And he said, basically he said, why don't you move to New York City and I'll manage you. And he was 21 years old. Well, I was only 22, and, uh, and I said, okay, I can't stand what I'm doing, so let's go for it, and uh, he started uh, pretending to be a manager, and uh, one thing that happened at Chapel, which was very useful, is that this guy named Norm Weiser, who was his boss, hooked, hooked me up with a, a trip, and John, too, with uh, with a trip to the West Coast and we went to LA and we started auditioning to people for people and uh, we uh, we wound up with this guy named Earl, Earl McGrath who had a little tiny label called Clean Records and he, he used to be sort of a he had a salon of musicians and artists and all that and we played for him and he said would you like to sign to our label and we said yes. And then he, for whatever his reasons, that this is a part I, I, behind the scenes that I don't know about, somehow that parlayed into me auditioning for Reef Martin and, and, and Ahmed and Jerry Greenberg uh, in New York City. And the next thing I knew, Earl gave up his claim to us, and I was on Atlantic Records.
4: Well, of course, Earl... Earl ended up running Rolling Stones records, which was through Atlantic. Who knows what the story was there? What year are we in? Okay, this this is about um, 1972. Okay, so is it you and John that are out there?
5: Yeah, this is this is a whole another story.
4: Okay, right. so Tommy makes a deal with Atlantic Records. Tommy
5: didn't have the ability to make. That's going to be
4: my question. He was twenty one
5: years old. <laughs> no. No. This guy Earl McGrath made a deal. He he Earl McGrath said, check these guys out. I sat down to a broken piano and played for Reef Martin with a with with the flu and and and, and, and Ahmed and they said you're signed, buddy. And that's how it happened.
4: Okay, who made the deal for you? Who need you have a lawyer or what how did that happen?
5: Yeah, I had a lawyer and I can't remember his name. <laughs> i did have a lawyer yes a lawyer was involved
4: <laughs> okay frequently when someone is knocked around as much as you have if you have any success somebody comes out and says i have paper you know you know i had a contract those songs are mine that happened to you at all
5: yes john madera john madera has been living off me for years he's, he's he he claims uh, made claims of of uh, uh, of owning uh, demos that i did on my own and with john and with this, with these guys, uh, this guy named Tommy Sellers, we had this kind of studio band we called Gulliver and uh, he, he put them out under Hall and Oats record, early days, Hall and Oats and all that. And he never, I never saw a dime from it at all. And, uh, that's that story. But uh, yes, of course that, that inevitably happens.
4: Okay. So you sign with Atlantic, you're making a record where along the line, do you have a band or if you ever have a band?
5: Well, we started, when we were playing in these tiny places, it was just the two of us. And then I, we, we did add a drummer and, and an, a, a guy who uh, played upright bass and, and and electric bass. And so by the time we actually had a this beginning of a record deal, we actually had a four-piece band. And we, we went in the studio with the first album with, part of the with those guys to some degree and also a studio bands you know various people that that he liked to use for the atlantic uh, records
4: okay you moved from philly to uh, new york at, with tommy's you know instigation what was it like suddenly being in new york and did you ever gain a rep in new york or just tommy got you to go to the west coast when you meet her mcgrath etc
5: no, we, we we didn't really move to New York until we had already signed with Atlantic and we and we're in the process of starting to make the first record and and so we we were newcomers in town and uh, we were in, in the Atlantic studios and uh, uh, like that I mean that was we weren't really even playing in New York we, we uh, it was mostly just for recording and and then we played we were playing in Philadelphia we played few other places we weren't really playing live a lot at that
4: period of time okay you meet john you ultimately live together you know the nature of these relationships is you kind of grow up with people then you grow apart you're in you know buses how do you maintain a friendship if at all or how do you start to argue over you know this ends up being over decades uh it's
5: it's it becomes sort of uh uh, very similar to brothers in my case in John's case, you know, you get along with your brother. Sometimes you don't get along with your brother. You, uh, uh, you know, you don't have to be around that person, but yet you you see him at Christmas time, you go, Hey, how you doing? And, and that's, that's as much as you need to do that kind of stuff. That's, that's, that's pretty much describes my relationship with John. Uh, we, we have experienced a lot together over the years and we've experienced a lot separately. And, uh, Time changes. Time changes things. It changes your relationship. It doesn't change certain things. Uh, uh, brothers are brothers, but uh, time does change things.
4: Okay. So you make a record with the reef, you know, who's someone with a lot of experience and a lot of success. What was that like? And what'd you learn from a reef?
5: Everything. I learned everything from a reef. He, he was, uh, he, he was unbelievable. I, I, I will never stop saying that. I, I, uh, uh, the best thing that ever happened to me was was uh, my relationship with reef he was a he was a, a, a to me reef and quincy jones are the two best producers in modern music uh, he could do anything he could put anything together and make it work and make it real his 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 musical knowledge was so disparate it was so all encompassing uh, that you couldn't throw anything at him, no artist could throw anything at him that he didn't uh, have the ability to relate to and understand and and, and formulate into something coherent and, and good. Um, he was uh, a real gentleman, and uh, I, I had a very close relationship with him for years and years, even after all this stuff went down, uh, and uh, I, all the way to his death, I, I had a relationship with
4: Okay, a lot of people say they make the first record, even though you had experience in your case, and they're kind of overwhelmed, and they let the producer steer them. Was that your experience, or you have so much experience, you could sort of stand up for what you wanted?
5: Well, I, I didn't know what I wanted with a Reef. Uh, it, the whole oats record, I, I don't even like that record, if you want the truth. Uh, but, uh, I, but I like what a Reef did to it. That, that's the best part. The best part is a Reef. of of that record um um, it was a it was a a bunch of songs that we had written while we were in school and all that and it was sort of a compilation that we decided it was a first album you know so i was i was more than happy to have somebody like a reef directing the show now i'm not usually like that and and i don't respond so well to autocratic producers he wasn't that by the way but uh uh I was very happy that he jumped in and made something out of that record, out of those songs.
4: Okay, what does the label say when the first record is not really successful? They didn't.
5: It was different times, man. They 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 said, "Don't worry about hits; just make great music," and that was what Ahmet said to me. And uh, I'll always respect him for that. You know, uh, they, they 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 believed in developing artists
4: so next you make a band in luncheonette what's a different experience there from making the first album
5: well i th- we I, that was purpose purpose uh written that was written for that project as i was talking about earlier and uh uh it was a real to me that was a hall notes album uh, there was a lot of john's uh, john contributed a lot to that album and uh, She's Gone is the ultimate contribution. That is the ultimate Hall & song because it was written by Hall & Oates. And uh, uh, it, it was a really, really ex- exquisitely produced album. Interestingly produced. Uh, I don't think there's anything like it. It's a bizarre album, but in, in its own way. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I continue to be very proud of that album. I, th- I think that was a great album and it, it it defines whatever any if you want to talk about hall and oats it, it, that's that's the record to uh uh pay attention to
4: now frequently when someone writes a classic they know it and did you know she's gone was a classic and how did you feel about the fact it didn't get traction at that time
5: i don't think anybody knows they write a classic until after the fact
4: I, that's impossible
5: to know uh, I, I knew that I wrote a good, uh, we wrote a good, a good song Harif. his eyes lit up the first time I played it I sat down and played that that riff that I play on the piano on the piano uh, I knew that there was something good about it and uh, I uh, was uh, what's the word I, 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 I was I was patient enough to let it to let the cards fall you know I mean um, the first thing that happened was it got covered by a bunch of people. Uh, even Lou Rawls covered it. You know, uh, uh, Tavares had a hit with it, um, and 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 it wasn't until Sarah Smile that anybody really focused on it as a, as as a Daryl and John song. Uh, although on quote underground radio, it, it got a lot of play back in those days.
4: Okay, since who owned your publishing at that point?
5: Well, that's always been a murky subject. Uh, I don't even know. I don't even know. I, I wasn't paying I was stupid, like many people are stupid, and I wasn't paying much attention to my publishing. I didn't even understand publishing back then.
4: When did you learn about publishing?
5: Too late. Too late.
4: So who owns your songs today?
5: Uh... I own 25% of them.
4: And the other 75%? Yeah.
5: Right now, BMG.
4: Okay, just so I know, 25% of the publishing such that if you write the song, you get 75 cents on the dollar?
5: No, I get 25% on the
4: dollar. 25% period? Yeah. Okay, and BMG does not own it, it's just licensed to BMG? No, they own it. Okay. So, let's assume you stop working tomorrow, owning only only 25% of your publishing. Is that enough to have you make ends meet?
5: Uh, Yeah, probably is.
0: Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other. As Infinity Presents... Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything, for every passenger, feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.
2: You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge
4: Okay so you make the second album you make the third album at what point do you realize there's going to be no future in at Atlantic and how did you end up at RCA?
5: well it was it was uh, it was more business I, I, I again this was more Tommy Matola talking to people you know he, he talked to this guy Mike Berniker. In, 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 uh I mean, I got to remember these names at uh, RCA. And they, I think they offered us a lot of money to leave. And I think Jerry Greenberg said, it's OK. We're not it's not really uh, it's not really clicking yet. Uh, and, and we'll let it go. And I, I'm not quite sure how that all went down. But that's that's sort of what happened.
4: Well, I don't know to what degree you were conscious. But at the time, RCA did not have a good reputation for breaking acts.
5: I didn't know shit. All I know is, is, is they were, were giving us, uh, you know, Matola. I was incredibly ignorant, Bob. That's all I can say.
4: Okay, so how did you, how did you approach the first album in RCA differently from how you approached the records on Atlantic?
5: Um, I can't remember who produced it. It oh, Chris Bond. Uh, ooh, I was working. Uh, we had a guitar player named Christopher Bond. And he was active when they abandoned the Band and Net record. And he said, let me produce you. And I said, okay. And it was basically, the, he was the band's guitar player. And uh, he was a very talented guy. And, and uh, uh, I don't know, I don't know what else to say about it. I wrote a bunch of songs and there they are.
4: So how'd you write Smile?
5: Sat down at the piano and wrote it. It was, it uh, was, uh, I was in uh, living in an apartment, 82nd Street, and uh, I basically it was a postcard. I mean, Sandy was there. I mean, she was in the other room, probably when I wrote it.
4: Well, were you writing it for a project, or did you get an inspiration standing in the shower? And go! Well, I got to run with this.
5: Oh well, I mean, I
4: I, I, I I totally
5: inspirational. I mean, all my songs are inspirational. I, it just happens to be within the project. Uh, but yes, I, 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 was, I knew that I was writing for that album. And I said, okay, here's a song. I mean, it was, it was total inspiration.
4: And so let's assume you're writing for a project. You know, you could sit in your studio and say, strum the guitar, or you could wait for a bolt of lightning. What is that experience like? Are there certain tricks you use to try to be inspired? Well,
5: Tricks. There are no tricks. I, I, I just observe. I observe and, and, and open my heart. And, and, and that's how things happen. That's as simple as that. It's, it's, all, it's, it's not, it's anti-intellectual.
4: Well, two things. What happens if, A, what happens if it's not coming?
5: I walk away. I, I just move on. I don't, I, don't, I don't belabor it,
4: ever. Okay, do you ever say, this isn't working, so let me go to a movie, let me go out for a drive, and maybe that'll loosen me up?
5: Well, yeah, I don't even sit down with the idea that I'm going to do anything. I, I usually, it's an inspiration and I walk over to a, the guitar, walk over to a keyboard and, and and make something happen. It isn't that I sit there and, like in a typewriter and say, okay, well, this is working and this isn't working. It, 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 it's working because I walk over to the keyboard.
4: Now, in one of these projects, did you ever find that you weren't inspired enough before the recording date hit?
5: No, no, I always, I always rise to the occasion. Uh, the results aren't always what I was hoping for or whatever, but, but uh, I, I, I rise to the occasion. I always do. So
4: how would you meet the Allen sisters?
5: I met uh, Sarah Allen in Philadelphia. Uh, actually, John introduced me to her. Johnny used to like to walk around. He, he still probably does that. Uh, and, uh, you know, on the streets and just say hello to people. And uh, Sandy Allen, Sarah Allen, was uh, living around the corner. Not to my knowledge, she was just out of college. She was a charter. She worked for Charter Airline, and uh, 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 she was in and out of town, you know. And I, I, she came over to the house one day, and I met her, and I said, "Oh, hello," you know. And we uh, eventually, we something clicked, and uh, we wound up uh, living together, and uh we I'm trying to remember we didn't live together in philadelphia we, we that was right around the time when I was moving to New York and uh she, we we shared that apartment on eighty second street and uh her sister lived in Chicago she was only a kid and uh, uh I met her around that time family stuff and uh, and we grew very close all the three of us and uh and and Janna moved to uh, the East Coast. And uh we were all sort of hanging out together and it was uh uh it was it was it was really quite nice. I mean uh like I said, Johnna was just a kid and uh but she was a very eager to learn kid. She was really a, a talented musician, I have to say. She was really talented.
4: Okay, now you'd been married. How'd you decide to get married as your work as things are kinda of bouncing off the walls before so Oh that was that was
5: I, I look at that as kid stuff, you know. As you know, it, it, the, the era I grew up in, you went steady and you got married, you know. I mean, this girl, it was it was school school stuff, and uh, we quickly learned that we weren't going to last. You know, it was we were just kids, and uh, it lasted like two and a half years, something like that.
4: How did it end? Amicably. It did. Just sort of boom. And in the fifty five decades, 50 years since then, have any contact or never seen her? I
5: haven't seen her. her. I haven't seen her in decades.
4: Okay. So, how do you end up writing songs with the Allen system? Well,
5: it started on the Silver album. I had this song, uh, you know, it doesn't matter. Yeah, it doesn't matter. And, uh, I mean sandy was around you know when we say sandy it's sarah you know and uh uh
4: she was around just just as we're there is her birth name sandy or sarah and how did one sarah. become the her other name is sarah allen and and she
5: uh, her, everybody calls her sandy that knows her
4: any reason any reason why do we know? know she's
5: been sandy as since she was a kid <laughs> <laughs>
4: Okay, so you're sitting around continuing yeah, the narrative. Yeah, yeah. So anyway,
5: uh, I, uh, I'll use Sandy now because I, I, now that everybody knows who Sarah is, and uh, and she used to just sit around. And, and, Well, she'd be there, you know, in the house. We were, I'd write in the living room, you know, and uh, she started contributing things. And she, and that song, you know, it doesn't matter anymore. She contributed to the song, and I went, oh, okay. Well, she actually has something interesting to say here. And, uh, in those days she didn't, it it was not anything official, and she didn't really write with me very much in those days. I can't remember when she actually started really collaborating, or co-writing, or throwing lyrics out. I can't remember which song would have been the first one other than that one. Uh, but, uh. In the in the late around nineteen eighty is well all those 80s songs is when it really came into fruition, and she was really in the middle of all that, and and really contributing a lot. Uh, and as far as Jana goes, Jana's the first the first song I ever wrote with Jana. She was at that at that time she was living with her parents. No, not with her parents. She was living in L.A. and uh, she had the idea of a song called "Kiss on My List." And it was the first song I ever wrote with her. She was 20. And, and I sat down with to a wireless piano. She had in her little living room. And I started playing those chords. And, uh, and, and she, she started, you know, we, we literally wrote the song together. And I wrote it because she said she wanted to be a, an artist. And I said, well, let's write a song for you. And I did that song. And, and I went back to New York and, and made it. Did a four-track demo of it, and that's what you hear. That's the four-track demo.
4: Yeah. Oh, really? Kiss it. Okay, let's go. Let's go back to the silver album. So, "Sarah Smile" is a hit, and in the wake of that, "She's Gone" is released and is a hit too. What was your experience? Well, there? "Sarah Smile" had an amazing
5: and and somehow appropriate beginning we were we had released that was the third third single that the RCA released on on the silver album and we were in Germany uh, we were in Germany touring and uh, somebody said in Ohio on the on the black stations in Ohio suddenly they're playing Sarah smiles uh, I think it was. It started in, in Dayton or Akron or somewhere like that. I can't remember, and uh, it suddenly started spreading all over, into in, in all the black stations, and we had a, we had a, a, a hit on R and B radio, uh, and it was like whoa, this is happening, and it, it really was word of mouth. It was like one of those things that spread like wildfire, and then then uh, uh, then pop radio what I call white radio at that time uh, started playing it and uh, it became this giant hit and it, but it all started in the black community. I mean, uh, Sarah smile was, was generated from that world, which uh, again, I find to be appropriate to the song and to my career in life.
4: So that's successful. She's gone as successful. How does that change your confidence and outlook?
5: Well, I, I figured we had some, <laughs> figure we had some <laughs> ability to, to stick around for a while. I mean, I, I didn't have any master plan, but I thought, okay, well, it's working. Something's working. Now we can go out and tour. You know, now we can play, we have songs to play for people that they want to hear. And um, uh, it was, uh, um, it was the beginning. You know, it was the beginning. It, it, it validated what I was doing, and that's encouraging. Validation is really an important thing because it makes you more confident in what you're doing.
4: Okay, so that record, how does the Bigger Than Both of Us album come together?
5: Uh, that was another Chris Bond record. And, and we did it in, Cal- we decided, it, well, he was living in California, and we decided to go out there and, and do it. Uh, and it was, uh, uh, yeah, that's, what I'm, that's all I could say. It was a California record. Uh, and, and, uh, and the musicians, the sidemen that were on it, were a, a lot of uh, the LA players.
4: Okay, so how did you write "Rich Girl"?
5: Okay, let's. Uh, we'll backtrack a little bit, and I'm back at 82nd Street um, in my apartment. Same keyboard I wrote "Sarah Smile" on. Um, Sandy had a old boyfriend came over from uh, Ohio, and uh, he was. Uh, you know, this was a uh, mid seventies, early seventies. Everybody was high as a motherfucker, you know. And um, he was, uh, uh, let's see, I think it's, I, I think his father had a, a fast food chain or something like that. I, I, I'm not even, I'm a little vague on all that. But anyway, he, he, he in my in my perception, he was a rich, he was a rich guy, you know. He came from a rich, he came from a rich family, and. Uh, so he he left, and uh, he was acting kind of strange. I mean, he, he was a good guy, uh, but I uh, it gave me a, it gave me the inspiration, and I sat down as he left. I went, he's a rich guy, and he's gone too far because he knows it don't matter anyway. And I wrote it about rich guy, and then I uh, I said, no, that doesn't sound right. I can't write a song called rich guy, so
4: I changed it to rich girl. Did you know as you were writing it? How successful it would be uh no (laughs) definitely not so you cut it in la you got a finished version you still have no idea how successful
2: it'll be
5: i think it's a rare person and in my entire career and i've had a lot of fucking success you know commercially i never was sure everything's a surprise Everything's surprised. Sometimes songs that I thought were going to be hits were, were zero. And sometimes I thought songs, okay, whatever, but became hits. It, it's, it, it, you never know, man. You can't tell. And a lot of that has to do with things that are out of my control. It has to do with the, the fucking payola and, you, you know, record business and all that bullshit.
4: Okay, I vividly remember hearing Rich Girl the first time and having to go buy the album, which was great. Needless to say, that becomes an iconic hit. How does life change for you? Uh, it didn't really change. It, it was just more of the same.
5: Uh, you got to understand something, too. Tommy Mottola was a very controlling human being. I think anybody that knows anything about Tommy Mottola's history, he liked to keep things under his control. He didn't like things to get out of control. He didn't like things to get too high or too low. Uh, and you were sort of in a bubble. Uh, ask Mariah Carey. Uh, you were in a bubble if you were controlled by Tommy Mottola, And uh, it wasn't conducive to highs and, you know, major, major highs. Or realizing where you were, or what you were doing. All I knew that I was a road musician, I was out playing on the road, and then I was uh, in the studio writing songs.
4: At what point, if any, did you start to see some money?
5: About five years ago.
4: Really? What changed five years ago?
5: Uh, which, what changed was I got a, I, I got the right manager for the first time in my life
4: and jonathan wilson he was a pr guy and now he's your manager how did that come together
5: well he was pr guy and and i realized that we had a a rapport and 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 an understanding of each other and he had an instinct an instinct and i i ran with it and uh made it made a major decision in my life and john's life and uh and, and never looked back and i've never been felt more justified in doing it
4: and what has John done differently from the people before
5: let me let my instincts drive the bus
4: okay so you have this major success just one thing one lyric on there which always sticks out for me earth shoes Chicago blues was that yours or was that John's no it's mine so what? I mean, Earth Shoes for a big deal. Then, do you remember? You know, a lot of people write songs. They don't like to put specific names in. Do you remember where that came from? If at all, it's a long time ago.
5: Specific names to what? That you put Earth Shoes in the song. Oh, Earth Shoes. Well, I, I couldn't think of. I was thinking of all the different things uh, that that you could. Uh, all the opposites. That you could think of it. It didn't matter because you just have to follow your instincts, do what you want, be what you are. You know, do you believe in hot cars, leather bars, and movie stars? Do you believe in earth shoes, Chicago blues? What you know? It, it's, it's yeah. Like that. I wrote that song, by the way, John didn't read that song.
4: Okay. If the credits are such that I did want to make an assumption. Okay. You're incredibly hot. Then you get cold do you feel that you're getting cold and nothing seems to be working? No,
5: I don't. I, I, I felt that we, first of all, the late seventies were a bizarre time. They were a bizarre time in, in societally and a bizarre time musically. Uh, and, uh, I was caught in the crossfire. Uh, I was, uh, I look at that as, 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 a, 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 it, it opened up an opportunity to me. And, uh, I, uh, that's when I. That's when I started working with Robert Fripp, and uh, and and did the, those albums that I did with, with him, and, and started uh, being more involved with the, in that world, and uh, that opened my whole that whole that expanded my life to quite a degree, and it and allowed me to get to the next stage. It was a tra- transitional period.
4: How did you meet Fripp, and what did you learn from Fripp? I learned
5: that you could have uh, do then my my sense of uh, spontaneity and 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 letting things happen uh, uh, quickly and and, and on the spot, and, and uh, I, that there are there were people that could uh, uh, roll with that and 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 expand upon it. And, and you can have that kind of interaction uh, creatively uh, Robert is like that we, we we created that shit out of nowhere I mean I, I just came up he would just play a guitar riff and I would start singing whatever came into my mind and uh, and a lot of the songs are like that I mean some songs are more structured than that but uh, a lot of it did come that way and uh, we my the Sacred Songs album happened. we made that album in about six weeks start to finish and uh and, and the Exposure album, which I did the whole album, you know, sang all the, wrote, wrote and sang almost all the songs. Um, uh, that, that didn't take much longer than I'm thinking about it. Um, but uh, it, it, it's that sense of spontaneity that I, and, and, and freedom, freedom and joy and all those things. That's, that's what I got from working with Robert.
4: Okay, how'd you end up working with David Foster? Was that your choice or foisted upon you?
5: It was sort of foisted. Uh, David, that, we were his second project. He was, again; he was a kid. He was twenty-two, uh, and he had—I forget who he had done first. Was it Earth Winter Fire? Maybe it was Earth Winter Fire, which is a hell of a beginning, uh, or maybe it was the Sons of Champlain. I don't know. Whatever. I'm, I'm babbling. Um, I i wouldn't call it foisted because he was suggested and uh uh, um, i thought that he was interesting and i met him and, and 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 he had a very strong personality as you can imagine and uh he was he had very strong opinions musically but yet he was a kid so he was unformed and uh we uh, and we I, we went to California and we made a couple records.
4: Okay, as I say, these records are not really big successes like "Bigger Than Both of Us." And the next thing I know, you're playing clubs and you put out a live album. I certainly went to the Roxy to see you. From the inside, there's no understanding that wow, this is going in the wrong direction. We need a hit. I don't know if it was
5: that we ever said it's going in the wrong direction. But I think that the idea that we needed a hit, especially in the early '80s or 1980 or whatever, was certainly on you know in our minds. Uh, uh, if it wasn't in my mind, it was it was certainly in Matola's mind. Uh, and uh, okay, yeah, like that. I mean, but then I don't know. I wrote a bunch of songs, and they became hits.
4: Okay, so how do you end up producing yourself? And whose idea is it to cover? You've lost that love and feeling.
5: I thought that the the key. I thought that the key to some kind of success was for me to produce the well. I I no, I, I, got, I have to include John in this. To, for me and John to produce the album ourselves, uh, because uh, I just felt that nobody really understood what we were doing other than ourselves, and uh, that came especially after working with David, who. Is a very talented guy. We all knew that, and but he had his own opinions, and and he didn't necessarily see music the same way as I did. Uh, so I, that was that was an important step: is producing ourselves. And uh, uh, and as far as who uh, you lost a love of you, we had we had done the whole album, and we felt that we needed something else to round out the album. And I happened to be in the Mud Club in New York. That was one of those days when everybody went to my club. And, uh, and, and you know, they played in the room. They were playing You Lost That Love of Feeling. And I thought to myself, well, that's an interesting thing. You know, it's a duo. Maybe we should just like sing, do a, a modern version of that song. Uh, and that's and we, the next, we were in Electric Lady Studios. And I think it was like the next day we, we went in there and we cut it. And we cut that song in about three hours. And uh, there it is.
4: So tell me the story of you make my dreams.
5: Uh, well, there's not a whole lot of story uh, other than I, I was sitting in my apartment in uh, in in the village, and uh, and I uh, I came up with that on. A, I had a, a, a I my working instrument at those days was a C, a Yamaha CP thirty, and, uh, and I I mention that because of the distinct sound of it, and it's that honky kind of strange unique sound and I just started playing that riff ball. you know and uh, I started singing something over it and uh, uh, there it was, you know, and I and I you make my dreams and, and I thought to myself, ah that's that's lame. You make my dreams come true. And and I realized that I, I tried to think around it and outthink myself. And I went, no, let's I, I just I'll stick with the original thought. It's 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 direct. It, it 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 is what it is. You make my dreams come true, and uh, then I decided I was going to offset that with a slightly more flower flowery um, uh, uh, verse lyric. And, and if you listen to those lyrics, they're a lot more high blown than "You Make My Dreams Come True."
4: Right. So now you have unbelievable success with this album. You have three hits that's got to feel good. And what do you think about going into the next record?
5: We were really in a whirlwind at that point. We were, uh, we were on the road. We were uh, experiencing immediate success. Uh, we were all over the world. Uh, we were, if we weren't all over the world, we were in the studio making the next record it was a very active time and with not a whole lot of time to reflect or understand what was going on around us. Uh, the old, the, the old cliche eye of the hurricane, uh, was pretty much the way to describe 1980 to
4: 1985. Okay. I can't go for that. No can do. What's the story there?
5: Um, I, uh I, I, we were doing the privatized album, right? Yeah. And, and, uh, I was, it was sort of after hours, and I uh, I had this Korg crappy little organ, and uh, and and I started I turned on and I had and I had a thing called a Roland Compu-Rhythm, which is the most rudimentary drum machine that ever was built, and uh, I pressed rock and roll one, <laughs> boom, dick, dick, boom, doom, dick, you know that beat, and I started playing boom, but that uh, uh, on on the organ and uh and then i started playing on the right hand and uh i said wait a minute i think i have something here <laughs> and uh i I, uh, I i i john was packing he was he was still there and he was packing his guitar i said you yeah, know john come in plug in just play play with exactly what i say to you play bump 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 right here he was right there Okay, bom, 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 and, I, and he played exactly what i dictated to him and i had a track that was it that was the track and then i i went in this in the room in the vote in the uh in the control room and said give me a microphone and i started singing and i started doing that and that was that is literally how the song was created
4: and then how did the ultimate lyrics come together
5: through my frustration
4: <laughs> okay so in the midst of all this mtv launches and you make videos this is in the rudimentary era of videos at first private eyes etc but also suddenly which we learn mtv makes people bigger than ever so what was your experience with mtv like it not like it. and then you end up having a long career there
5: well, I, I had a, a love-hate relationship with it. I I, uh, I was there, I, as you say, I, I was there from the, the the beginning, like the first bloody day, and uh, nobody really knew what they they had, and they didn't really know what they were doing. They they didn't have a they had no scripting. Uh, the the VJs uh, they would just give Martha Quinn or you know the, the, who you know you name it two hours, just go. Here's here's Play this one. there's a about Pat Benatar. Play this one. Play that one. You know, and you and just talk. And I have to hand it to these. Well, they were like radio DJs. They would just talk. And uh, very early on, they asked me to do it. And both both on my own and with John uh, to to be VJs. And we would just do anything just to pass the time. I mean, I remember one time I had T Bone on there cooking. Cooking eggs or something in between songs. <laughs> I mean, it was it was all kinds of it was anything goes. It really was anything goes, and that was great. It was like the early days of television when you hear about Sid Caesar and you know and uh, 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 you know the, those days. It, it reminds me a lot of that. It was nobody really had any rules, so they didn't because it was a brand new thing. So uh, it was a really heady time, a really a really fun time, but. Then you had to deal with the videos and the videos were, you know, these extravaganzas generally done by cokeheads that did commercials, you know, uh, and, and they were all always overblown and they were always ridiculous and they always had nothing to do with the song. And that was the part I didn't like. So there it is.
4: Okay. But now everybody over the, all over the world, not only knows your songs, they know what you look like. Yeah. And you could you feel that change anywhere you went? People knew who you were, and was that you know inhibiting or well, good? Well,
5: it was it wasn't in, was it inhibiting. It, you know, I mean, I, I had already experienced that to some degree, but it all it, actually my my big commercial success came simultaneously with that, so I can't differentiate. I don't know. All I know is that I was you know yeah it was Daryl I mean people, which you know I, I was I couldn't go to Christmas shopping or do anything. I mean I i was chased down the streets and, and I, you know i it was like the beatles you know it was, that, that's bullshit you know it was it was that that kind of stuff screaming girls and uh uh it was uh, uh it was weird i got to say it was weird
4: so you have a long run of success album after album with hits did you just feel you would come up with hits or did you go into the studio as you say you start your project me and i gotta i gotta equal i gotta have something like that on the album
5: no i know ne- i i have never in my life thought that way because that is the death of anything death of creativity uh i i i in the back of my mind i always tried to do my best and and i realized what what I, what i was doing but i i wasn't writing songs with the idea they were going to be hits i i write the best song I can think of to express the emotion that's going on in my head in my heart. Uh, and that's, that's, that doesn't get any farther than that. Really? I mean, that's, that's how the songs get written.
4: So at the peak of your success, you end up going to Arista. How does that come together? Oh,
5: again, that was the machinations of, of, of Tommy. Uh, I, I, uh, I didn't care where I was, if you wanted the truth, and and uh, you know again, more than I and and being insulated and isolated, uh, and uh, I guess I don't know. Clyde, Clyde, oh, Jesus, Clive, <laughs> not Clyde. Uh, Clive Davis, uh, he wanted us badly. I don't know, you know, he and and he. He basically gave us a pitch to go there, and uh, I guess it worked for Alan Grubman and Tommy Mottola. it Had nothing to do with me.
4: Clive has a great, great, a big reputation for meddling with the music. Did he meddle with your music?
5: Yes, he tried. I, it did. It didn't. I, my my re- uh, experience with with Clive didn't really turn out very well. Uh, because I, uh, I don't like being told what to do by anybody. And uh, uh, I, I, I mean, I don't want to put Clive down, you know. But yes, he was a meddler. And, and he and his, what he thinks his instincts are, are not necessarily what's best for the artist. And, uh, you know, I had I had one memorable meeting where I walked out of the, basically walked out of the meeting when he tried to get me to sing a song called, I've got a new blue suit.
4: (laughs) 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 So, you know, it's a bad experience all around. Clive is meddling and you have no hits. What's going through your brain?
5: What's next? I don't know. Uh, I can't even remember what was going on then. Oh, you know what? I I don't know. I I was, I was starting to think about uh, making some solo records and uh and, and and moving into that direction for a while and uh I, I i i've always spent a lot of time in england especially in london and uh i decided i i had a house at, at that time i well I, I i had bought a house and uh i decided to move to england so i moved to england and, and made a couple records basically out of there and uh I'm very proud of it. I, the, that's what I'm promoting right now. That's, I'm, I'm promoting the uh, excerpts from, the, from those albums. And uh, I looked at that as, a, that was that was a lot of fun. The early 90s were great.
4: Okay, so things keep moving on. MTV changes, it becomes hip hop, you know, grunge, et cetera. Very slick videos. You make those albums. When you come up for air, what does the world look like to you?
5: Uh, it was it, 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 when I came up for air out of my good time in London. It started going like, okay, now I got to figure out what I'm really going to do. And uh, I, uh, I, I will say that the second half of the 90s, I was I was looking for direction. I was looking for something. I was looking for whatever. Uh, Matola had left. I mean, that was that. We go back to that. In about 1989 is when we parted company.
4: Just to be very specific, he ended up going from the management side to the label. Is that what ruptured the relationship or is it something totally separate?
5: It was a little, a combination of both. He, he, he left me for Mariah and, uh, and I say it that way because that's what it was like. And, uh, and, and, uh, and then at the same time he managed to, uh, well, there's books been written about it that he got into, uh. Managed to get into the a, a position of uh, the head of a, uh, of Sony, and uh, uh, so we didn't really have. That's when our relationship changed completely, and uh, 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 and I moved on, and, and I and I went up with the with, with somebody who used to work w- in the Mattel organization, and and he was also my tour manager, and he he started managing me for quite a while until until Jonathan came
4: on the scene. Okay, so prior to Mariah coming on the scene and based on what you just said, can we say that you were number one in Tommy's book, that you trumped everything and he was thinking about you, etc.?
5: Oh, without a doubt, without even a shadow of a doubt. I mean, he had other artists uh, and I feel bad for those other artists, if you want the truth. I mean, one of my somebody who I think is one of the great overlooked artists is August Darnell. With Kid Creole and the Coconuts, he was uh, he was managing uh, August, but he, Christ, he, you know, he didn't have a clue what to do in August. Uh, and and uh, even though Augie had great success in in Europe, outside of the United States, Tommy didn't know what to do with him. He was busy uh, busy with me, basically.
4: And you part ways. Is that the hundred percent end of the relationship? Or do you have any contact with them thereafter through today?
5: Not through today, so much. Uh, uh, we, I, we, we were in contact for many, many years after all that. Uh, now, nowadays, uh, we we're, we're not really uh, so much in contact.
4: So you come back to the states. It's the nineties. You're looking for direction. Pick up from there.
5: Uh, I'm thinking. I did the I did my solo albums, two solo albums. I did an album called Marigold Sky, with John. Decided to try a, a, a record with John, and then uh, then I uh, did oh I did the Do It For Love album with uh, with with John, that was in England. Uh, and uh, then we did other things. We we did we did a Christmas album. I mean you know, This all kind of runs together. Uh, it was just kind of random. I, I don't know. We 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 didn't really have a focus direction either as Hall and Oates or as solo artists. Uh, it was sort of in between. It was the beginning of that. It was the beginning of uh, of us going in, in two different directions, and uh, uh, but but still doing the occasional project and doing and and uh, and playing live. That was when we sort of became a live band for real and started playing everywhere. And
4: was that driven by a need to be on stage or a need for money?
5: Both. You got to make money. You got to, you have to support a band and you have to support yourself. Uh, you know, I'm like anybody, you have to have a job. And, uh, uh, uh as far as need to do, I, do I need it? I, I, I've been doing it my whole life. So I don't know if you call that a need or not, but I, I do live to perform. I love to perform. I'm a, I'm a performing animal.
0: Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all new 2025 Infinity QX80. feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.
2: You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employer's respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu.
1: Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious.
4: At what point in this story do you get into construction projects? <laughs>
5: that's that's a parallel story. I've been doing that forever. I grew up in a uh, in, in a in a strange family of there were either musicians and or people who worked in like my grandfather was a stonemason and bricklayer. When I say bricklayer, he wasn't. He he built houses. He built chimneys. He was he was he was a specialist, and uh, I used to live on construction sites. My father built the house that I grew up in. Um, I, uh, I've always been around. People who work with their hands and uh, carpenters and and, and 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 specialists, and I grew up in Chester County, which is a uh, you know in the midst of, the eighteenth century basically. Uh, That's, you know, my my family houses are uh, those kind of houses, you know, antique structures. And uh, I've always had a love of history, and let me think, the first first house I renovated was that one I told you about that I would pay $85 a month for. It was a, a, a late 18th century house, row house in Philadelphia that was completely destroyed, and I went in there and started renovating and painting and doing everything. And, and fix that house up to live in, and then the second one. I'm, I've done so many houses I just, over the years. Uh, uh, I, I've I've done many many historic houses, and I really like doing it. I, I know how to organize it. I know how to. Uh, I understand the history of it. I understand how things, how how things work. I understand construction. I understand all those things, and uh, I really enjoy it. It's sort of a uh, an avocation. The house that I'm doing this in right now is a house that I completely renovated from scratch. Uh, 1780s house.
4: Okay. So they're always existing houses. You never want to build from scratch.
5: Oh no. I, uh, the, the house that I did, the life of Daryl's house show in, I did, uh, I, I, I took two houses down in, in, uh, in, uh, near Hartford, Connecticut and moved them to Dutchess County, New York. Uh, from the and and then and built them from below the foundation up. So I, I, I reconstructed those houses out of uh, uh, you know out of the original materials.
4: Okay, let's let's just say this is what you like to do. Are you always looking for a project? How do you find the houses?
5: Well, I'm I'm always sort of in a project. I I I I don't think there's been much time that I haven't been under construction or in a situation where there's construction going on under my, under my direction.
4: But as I say, what do you decide, how do you find the projects to work on?
5: Well, a lot of in, 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 well, in just about all the cases I was, there were, uh, uh, houses that I wound up living in for at least a while.
4: Okay. So you say you really know how to do it. Let's say we find a classic house, 1700s, 1800s, in need of repair. Walk me through the steps of bringing it up to your uh, standards. Well, it depends what it needs.
5: I mean, that, that's a, that's well, let's, a,
4: let's talk about the worst case scenario.
5: What, it, what might that be?
4: That might be something that needs foundational work, needs detail work uh okay. meet, you know to what degree can you do with your friends to what degree do you need to outside contract stuff like oh, that? i see okay sure uh well i mean
5: you need specialists because and that that's the whole thing that's one of the things i like about it is that that all these people are artisans and they do things i like to do things in a in a way that were done originally i don't like to bring things in unless i have to uh that are uh that are, that are modern uh, additions to it. Uh, for example, this house that I'm in, uh, I had foundational issues. Uh, the, the wall over by the, not this room, but in the other side of the house, was starting to cave in around where the chimney stack is. And I had to shore that up. I had to use uh, I-beams, and I had to uh, 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 re- restructure the, the wall to uh, to shore up the foundation Uh some I had, I had columns I had to, uh, uh, you know uh, that weren't there before. Um, well, there you go. That's that's how you fix it. A, a, a,
4: a, okay. A to foundation. what you need to say? You're a working musician. To what degree are you supervising all this?
5: Well, it depends on the project. I was very much supervising the Flint Hill project because I it was I I was there. It, was, it has to do with proximity. This house it's been taking me forever to do. It started with I had the TV show, and I was that's when this this house that I'm sitting in started that project, and I'm now just finishing it because I've been working so much that I couldn't be around physically, and so it's taken years to uh, uh, to to bring to completion. Um, but it, I find that you have to use good GC. You have to have a sympathetic GC, somebody who really understands antique architecture. And I have an architect who is my friend as well as uh, she's an amazing. Uh, 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 she has amazing ability to to work with antique, antique projects, and uh, and I trust her. I trust her. She does she does the uh, the heavy lifting literally, uh, and uh, you know does does the drawings and all that. But but uh, you know it's it's all about my decision making
4: anybody who's involved with construction know that it's done by individuals and it's never perfect to what degree have this, has this been your experience and to what degree do you let things go to what degree do you make them do it over now? Well, toward the end
5: of, uh, uh, of one era of this project that I'm in, uh, I had a GC walk off the job. He was a jerk. He uh, basically, I, 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 turned him on to some people, and instead of, uh, and, he, and he, and he, left me for those people. I mean, You know, that's one of those kind of, and uh, so I was stuck. I was stuck without a GC. I was stuck without, and, uh, uh, and I was in the middle of a. It was a very difficult time. I was not getting along with my, with my wife, and, and uh, uh that, 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 I don't want to get into that. But, uh, uh, I had to hire. An architect and i hired a gc from the area that i really wasn't that familiar with and uh and, and a construction company to to sort of keep the project going and um, they acted like they knew what they were doing but they didn't know what they were doing and then i wound up having to go on the road to pay for all this and uh uh anyway long story short that's when they started doing fucked up things and and i came back and said what is this and I, I did make them rip things out i'm still in the process of of some of the things of of undoing some of their bad work so uh that happens
4: so you enjoy it but when the process is done and you sell it are you in the black or the red
5: uh depends depends on the time uh Depends on the real estate time. Right now, I would be in the right now. I would be in the in the black, because it's a good time for real estate. But if it, uh, I, like the Flint Hill project, it was sort of a financial disaster because I was doing it all. I it was my my major one, my my big work, right? And uh, magnus opus, and 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 um, uh, and I, I completed it. When, twenty oh eight, right when the real estate, <laughs> when when everything fell to pieces, when when nothing was worth anything, so uh, that wasn't such a great result, but uh, but the, the the project itself was was amazing.
4: So how many houses do you own right now?
5: Oh, well, I uh, this one that I'm in. Uh, I have a studio house that's about a couple of miles away. And I have a family house in London.
4: Okay. So tell me about the genesis of live from Daryl's house.
5: I just had, an, it was an idea, a simple, simple idea that I could bring the world into my, into me, as opposed to me going to the world. And at the time, the internet wasn't being used for entertainment in any way. It was being used for communication and information uh, and things like that and and commercialization. Uh, But uh, nobody really had anything that resembled an entertainment show, at least nothing important, especially not a music show. So I decided I was going to do a music show. And, And I got somebody to fund it, which is super important, changed my life. And uh, we started doing it. We just did it. Uh, it, was, it was all very real. And uh, I said, you know, no audience. Let's just get in a room and, and with people and show, show the world what it's like to be in the inner sanctum of, 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 of you know, musical creativity and interaction. And, uh, and one of my first guests was Smokey Robinson. I I called in my cards, you know, I called in my, uh, I I was just on the phone with people and Smokey unbelievably came up to Dutchess County, you know, which is not that close to anywhere. Uh, And, uh, he came up and it was amazing. And, uh, that was one of the first shows, but, uh, and it just went from there and people really responded to it. And I was so happy. It made me so happy. It's the, it's the happiest I've ever been is doing is, is. Doing these these shows and that and that series, I, it it fulfilled me. It, it it defined me really. It it shows people what I do, what I'm like, what I'm like as a person, what I and what I do in life, what I'm good at, and uh, yeah. So I got some new shows coming.
4: Okay, that's going to be my next question. So you know, you put them out as a web series, as you say, the buzz was unbelievable, and you were way ahead of everybody else. Then ultimately, you got a deal for television so what's the status of it now
5: well you know everything changes now i don't i I, I have i i I have uh, uh regained the funding and uh so that's an important part this is not an easy show to do financially and uh uh but having said that how to put it out i'm not sure because everything changes i mean uh how do i want to put it out now I mean, I've, I've been toying with the idea of uh, of uh, just uh, going on YouTube and putting it out that way, you know, because YouTube is now a, a channel, a channel unto itself. Uh, maybe do a combination of uh, I, I don't know. I, I I haven't found I I don't know where its spot is going to be, but it's going to be somewhere, obviously. But I but the thing is that it is an international show, and whatever I do will be. I want to do something that makes it easier for everybody around the world to watch it. So, uh, I may use regular terrestrial television. I might use some streaming service. I might use YouTube. I, I don't. I don't know yet, or a combination thereof.
4: So, how many shows do you plan to do?
5: I'm going to start with six next one season, and then uh, let's see.
4: Now, how expensive is it to do a show?
5: Well, it costs money, but. It's not the production. The production is relatively, it, well, you know, a little bit of money, but it, it's the clearances and all that stuff. You know, it, it, there's a lot of money. You have to pay a lot of people. You know, you know, artists and publishers. And, you know, there's a lot, a lot involved in it. A lot of legal things and a lot of machinations. And it was hard to get going in the beginning because there was a lot of people who didn't understand what I was doing, and they thought that I was trying. You know, they were uh, some. People thought that I was like Napster Junior, you know, back in those days, that I was trying to steal from the artist, not enhance the artist's uh, career. So I had a lot of, uh, of, of, of resistance to get this stuff started. But uh, I will say that my manager and me figured it out how to do it.
4: And at this late date, because you've done so many, at first you call in your cards. How do you select guests now?
5: Well, I still call it cards. Um, I have some feelers out right now that are uh, that are uh, interesting ones, um, but a lot of it comes down to scheduling. Most artists have lives; and they work, and then they're on the road, and they're not in this necessarily in anywhere near uh, upstate New York. Uh, you know, uh, so there's a lot of that that. that that's actually one of the biggest factors in trying to get people to figure out how they're going to actually be able to do the show. Most people say yes. That's the funny thing. Not funny, that's the happy thing. Uh, uh, people say, yeah, sure, man, I love that show. I watch it all the time. And I say, okay, when can you do it? Well, you know, I'm doing a tour, that maybe next year, you know, that kind of thing.
4: So will it be done in the same space with the same format, with cooking, et cetera?
5: I think so. I'm going to incorporate this house, which is different uh, than the old house. And I do it in my club. So I I think I'm probably going to do the music in the club and the food and conversation and dinner here in this house, which is only a couple of miles away.
4: Now, people always talk about owning a club and owning a bar, but it is a business and it's an incredible headache. So how did you decide to own the club and how much of your input and hands-on attention does it need?
5: Well, luckily I have a partner and he has another club he has a club in in uh, the west coast and uh so he he's and his, his his club is a version of of the kind of club that I have and uh, so he he understands that uh, it, it it started with a lot of his bringing his his cook in and things like that. So I had a lot of help in getting it going. I, I make the creative decisions. Uh, I have a lot to do with the food. Uh, I, uh, w- you know, we figured out uh, as far as the booking goes and things like that. Um, and I leave the actual nuts and bolts financing and, and those those that area to my partner who, uh, like I said, has plenty of experience in this. Uh, I will say that we managed to somehow survive the pandemic, which was really not easy.
4: So prior to the pandemic, is this just a labor of love, or can you make any money?
5: Well, it's a it's it, it, it's it's sort of a uh, it's a generator, you know. It's, it, it's 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 I have people from all over the world come and play there, and people from all over the world actually come there. So it, it's become a it's become a physical uh, shrine to whatever it is the Daryl's house kind of thing, and uh, uh, and it's it, it is a labor of love. I love clubs. I love the idea of clubs. Clubs are where all the good stuff happens, uh, the best music, and uh, I, I, I and it's also the place that that I do my, my show out of. You know, it's 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 a home for me. It's the home of, uh, home of the show. Uh, so it's uh, you know it it provides a lot of uh, it. There's a lot of the, the generates
4: out of it. Okay, just to be clear, where the original episodes were shot from live from Daryl's house, that is not the club. That's a house you used to own, right?
5: Yeah, that's the that's the Flint Hill house that I created from scratch.
4: And you ultimately sold that when.
5: In, 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 uh, about 20, you know, I don't know, 2012, I'll say something around that area, maybe 2013. I don't know.
4: Okay. Needless to say, we're all getting older by the minute and no one gets out of here alive. You know, do you feel that at all that, you know, there's a limited time left and you want to accomplish or you just want to ride? What, what's your perspective on aging and, you know, the grim reaper?
5: Well, my perspective is that at this time of life, it is time to not pull any punches. Do whatever it is that makes, that fulfills, for me, I'll say me. Do whatever it takes to, to fulfill myself. Uh, what I, do it now. Do it. Don't fuck around. You want to do something? Go do it if you can do it, uh, because there ain't that much of a future, Come on, you know. I mean, the, I, I'm going to do it until I can't do it, and uh, I have a. I'm very lucky that I have a pretty good genes. My my mother's ninety eight, and my, and my father was ninety six when he died, and that wasn't his fault. Uh, so um, I, I I think I have some time left, you know. I, I and and I, but I'm going to do my best to take advantage of that time. That's what else can I say?
4: Needless to say, you started a long time ago when music really drove the culture. You had a hit. Everybody in the world knew it today. We live in a very broad culture where a number one hit reaches fewer people than ever before. In addition, there are scenes that don't seem to stream that well, but do incredible live business. Do you keep up on hit music or you just say, I'm doing what I'm doing. That's just something different.
5: Uh- I don't keep up with anything. I don't try to. I use. I I, I listen to music randomly. Uh, I'm not a great audience. I, I, I'm, although I'm a very uh, heartfelt audience when I like something. I'm really a lucky person because that what you talked about. I experienced. I had a hit. The whole world knew about it. It was that. I, I benefited from that. I I I I made my bones on that. And and, and I used that. For what I do now, which is very tribal, and I, I, I can relate to tribalism very well. I mean, I, I like having my people and and playing to the people that give a shit about me, and uh, I. That's yeah. I mean, it it, it it it's worked out very well in my favor. I think. I feel.
4: Okay, we both came of age in the sixties. 50s were sort of somnambulant, 60s come along, you know, the boomers take over, there's a war of the generations, the Vietnam War. Needless to say, it's radically different. What do you think about today's environment?
5: Well, we live in a dysfunctional, crashing and burning world. It's, that's a whole other podcast, if you want the truth. I mean, I don't even know what to say. I'm, I, I, I'm a, I see this horrible, horrible disparity between mindsets. And, uh, that's, that's uncrossable. And I don't see things getting better. I, I'm, I'm a historian, maybe an amateur historian, but I'm a historian. And, uh, and and I I we're, we're, we're I see parallels, man. We're headed for the dark ages. Good luck.
4: Well, we believed in the '60s that music could save the world. Does music have a role, or have times changed, or it never had that power?
5: I think that there was a, a, a there was a time where music actually did have a lot of power. It really did. Uh, Beatles come to mind, you know. I mean, you know, I mean, it, it was cha- it was changing things. It was it was it was it was it was, uh, it, it drove a social movement. I think in the, in in the late '60s. Uh, now, does music have any thing, any power? No, but it can't because of what you said before. Because you can't have a hit and then everybody in the world hears it. So you have your tribe, and that's it. You know, it's 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 never going to have that kind of. Uh, ability to move people
4: it can't possibly and what about legacy do you care if you're remembered Do you care if uh your songs last
5: uh well i'll take the john lennon thing and says who gives a shit after i'm dead <laughs> you know uh i mean
2: uh,
5: do i care no I, I caring is a funny word uh i mean it, it, I, i'm proud of what i've done and, and uh, that's, that's all I can say about it. You know, I mean, people could, t- once it leaves me, it belongs to the world.
4: I think that's a perfect note to end on. Daryl, I want to thank you for taking the time. It's very insightful. Great to learn things I didn't know. Thanks again. Sure, man. We can do it. You bet. Till next time, this is Bob Left
5: Or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber,
0: not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. With the best
1: all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with Cheap Caribbean Vacations means you have more freedom. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas, and more, Cheap Caribbean Vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book using our exclusive budget beach finder or find a featured all-inclusive package to Hyatt Ziva Riviera Cancun at CheapCaribbean.com. That's CheapCaribbean.com.